Open your Bibles, if you would, to Psalm 96. That's where we're going to be finishing off this morning. Psalm 96. I mentioned that I recently led a conference in uh, California, Worship God Triune. And at the end of the conference, a gentleman came up to me and said, hey, I've got an idea for a theme for a future conference, for a future Worship God conference. I said, oh, really? Great. What is it? He said, evangelism. I thought, okay, Worship God, evangelism. Yeah, okay, well, thanks for that. Appreciate that. But the more I thought about it, I thought, you know, that's really smart. That's really good. Because we tend to think of worship and mission as two different things where in God's mind and God's heart, they're really the same thing. As John Piper famously said, missions exist because worship doesn't. We look outward because we want more people to experience what we've experienced. Worship takes place when we sing songs as well as when we tell people how great Jesus Christ is and what he's done to save us. So this morning I want to speak on this topic, God's glory, our motivation for mission. God's glory, our motivation for mission. And we're going to look at Psalm 96 to explore that topic. You know, you can, we can often differentiate between like musicians who, uh, you know, lead the worship and evangelists who are just always like talking to people about the gospel, going out, not, you know, not so much building the church as trying to bring people in. I hope that by the end of this morning we'll see better how those two are integrally connected. That's my prayer. So Psalm 96, it's a slightly abbreviated version, uh, rather a slightly abbreviated version of this psalm is found in 1 Chronicles 16. It's sandwiched between Psalm 105 and 106 there, and it gives us an idea of the setting of the psalm. King David and the Israelites were bringing back the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. The Ark represented God's presence and God's rule among the people of Israel. And it had been captured by the Philistines and they were bringing it back. So it was a sign of God's favor. It was a time of celebration and triumph. You had hundreds of priests and hundreds of people singing and playing instruments. The priests were offering sacrifices. David, remember, was dancing before the Lord with all his might. So it was a happy time. And as part of the celebration, the chronicler records these words from Psalm 96. This psalm, like a few other psalms, uh, 33, 47, 66, and 67, or a few of them, connect the praise of God's people with the praise of the nations. The idea of God's people, including non-Jews, wasn't something that originated in the New Testament. It became clearer in the New Testament and was made possible through Jesus. But the seeds of it are in the Old Testament for sure. Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon, that great preacher of the 19th century, called this the Grand Missionary Hymn. It presents this expansive worldwide vision that views the worship of believers as an event of cosmic proportions. We just think we're singing in a room God says, oh, no, this, what you're doing, it has eternal significance. It has significance for the nations. 
He wants us to see that. So, in fact, when, as we go through this psalm, I think we're going to see that God's glory is both the motivation and the goal of mission. God's glory is the motivation and the goal of missions. God is worthy to be worshipped, not only by those who say they believe in him, but by everyone and everything. And the more we believe that, the more we will be motivated to tell others about the salvation we received in Jesus Christ. So let's read it together. Actually, I'll read it to you. This is the word of God. This is the most important thing you'll hear this morning. So pay attention. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord, all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations. How marvelous, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the people are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord. For he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the people's in his faithfulness. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have given us psalms like this to raise our vision, to raise our sights, to give us faith that you mean to do more than simply work in our lives. You want to work through our lives to bring glory to your great name. I pray that you would give me clarity, enable me to be faithful in proclaiming your word and that you'd give us ears to hear and hearts to joyfully obey. Hearts to joyfully believe what you have promised. And we ask that you do this through the power of your spirit and for the glory of your son. In his name we pray. Amen. I'm going to uh, divide the psalm into three sections, seems to naturally fall into three separate sections, each calling a different group to give praise to God. First section, verses 1 through 6, God's people are called to worship him. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name, tell of his salvation from day to day. 
The psalmist is speaking to God's people, telling them, sing to the Lord a new song. Now, a new song could be literally a new song, a song that's never been heard before, or it could be an old song that's being sung in response to a new act of deliverance. So God's being faithful to deliver his people again. And so the psalmist says, sing a new song. It's time to sing a new song. We've been set free. Our enemies have been defeated. God's a deliverer. Sing a new song. You know, that's what we tend to do when we've been set free. I realized when I was preparing this, I was going to use two illustrations from The Wizard of Oz. It's uncharacteristic. Um, so I hope you're familiar with the, the show. Um, but there's this scene where the, the wicked witch has water poured on her and she melts. And, I'm melting! I'm melting! And, you know, she's, she has exercised dominion over Oz for a long time. And she's defeated. And what do they do? Do they say, hey, the witch is dead? They sing a song. Ding dong, the witch is dead, witch old witch, the wicked witch, ding dong, the wicked witch is dead. It's a celebration. Every time we get to that part, I go, yeah. As a little kid, I was kind of scared of the witch. So it was great when she was like melted and they sang. And so that's just what's happening here. When God had delivered the Israelites from the Egyptians, they sang a new song. Even back then, that's, that's the first new song that's sung in Scripture. It's recorded in Exodus 15. It says, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. Now that was a big act of deliverance. They had come to the edge of the Red Sea. Pharaoh's army was rushing towards them. They're standing there thinking, what are we going to do? There's nowhere to go. And then all of a sudden, God opens the Red Sea. And they walk across on dry land all two million of them or so. And they get to the other side, and the Egyptian army follows them right through. And as they're in the middle, Scripture says the waters close in on them. And for people say, well, no, that, they were just like going through the Reed Sea, not the Red Sea, and it was a bunch of reeds. It's kind of like a marsh, and they got stuck. And... But the Bible says that the, the bodies of the Egyptians washed up on the shore. <laughs> So if that was just getting stuck in the mud, I mean, something else must have happened. It was a sea. God caused the Egyptian army to be defeated, and they were thrilled. So they sang a new song. I will sing to the Lord. He has triumphed gloriously. The horse and rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he's become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. And ever since that event, the, the Israelites would sing a new song when God delivered them. So that's what they're doing here in Psalm 96. Israel had defeated their enemies, the Jebusites, who had mocked the true God. And they were bringing the ark back into the city of Jerusalem, David's city. So they are experiencing God's mercy in a fresh way. And they were responding with jubilant song that's filled with passion and filled with action. So they're saying, sing a new song, sing to the Lord, sing to the Lord, bless his name, tell of his salvation. Bring an offering, ascribe the Lord glory, worship the Lord, tremble before him, say, the Lord reigns, be glad, rejoice, exult. They're pretty excited. 
Now, sing to the Lord appears three times right at the start. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord, all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless his name. God's works are meant to inspire praise that expresses itself in singing. But it's not just any kind of singing. It's not, it's not the, the end goal isn't just to hear voices singing. God never tells us to praise him without giving us reasons for why we should do it. Never. And that's what he does here. Verse 3, declare his glory and his marvelous works. Verse 5, the Lord made the heavens. It's a good reason to praise him. Verse 6, splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. So praise the Lord. It's giving, him, giving us reasons. He's the creator. He's majestic. He's strong. He's beautiful. And most importantly, we're told in verse 2, the theme of our song. Sing to the Lord, bless his name, tell of his salvation from day to day. Not just a couple days or when you feel like it. Tell of his salvation from day to day. In the Old Testament, God's people regularly remembered and celebrated God's acts of salvation, particularly their deliverance from the Egyptian army at the Red Sea. Now that Christ has come, oh, we have a greater salvation to sing about. We have a greater new song to sing because Jesus has come not to save us from the Egyptian army, but from the jaws of hell, from the power of Satan, from the triumph of the grave. <laughs> it's quite a deliverance. We deserve to be rightly condemned for sinning against a holy, just, good God. And Jesus delivered us from the wrath we deserved. He took our place on the cross, and now we're delivered. And not surprisingly, that's the salvation song they're singing in heaven. That's the new song that's being sung in heaven. Well, it doesn't sound like a new song. I mean, that happened like 2,000 years ago. Oh, no, it's a new song because Jesus is always delivering, always saving, always rescuing. So in Revelation 5, last book of the Bible, the hosts of heaven are singing this new song. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. So that new song, praising God for that work of deliverance, goes on into eternity. We'll always be singing that new song. But the psalmist doesn't want to think, as I mentioned, I think, last night, that our worship of God is unopposed or will go unopposed. We mustn't think that no one cares if we sing the song of deliverance if we praise God for his salvation. So he says in verse 4, For great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, he is to be feared above all gods. 
He is to be feared above all gods. As we mentioned last night, everyone worships something. Everyone gives their life to something or pursues something outside themselves for ultimate satisfaction or ultimate pleasure. And whenever that something is not God, it's an idol. So there exists this temptation for God's people to fear, to want something, or to worship something more than God. And those are our idols. And every Christian struggles with them. It's not like we come to the Lord and now we worship God and nothing else. It's great. It's pretty easy. No, no, no. We have to be reminded every day, if not every moment, the Lord, great is the Lord and greatly be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. He is to be feared above all gods. And in Sydney, as in other parts of the world, two of the most common idols are pleasure and comfort. We, we just have this sense that, that we're supposed to have things the way we want them. That, that we're supposed to enjoy everything we do. It's why we complain. It's why we gripe. It's why we whine. It's why we're sad and not joyful at times. Because it's just not the way I want it. I want this. I'm not getting it. I'm getting this. And if that becomes a demand, it's become an idol. And that's we're, we're fearing something other than God. It could be things like money thinking that I will be totally satisfied when I make X amount of dollars and when I have this job. It could be a career. It could be sex. It could be power. Idols promise that they'll satisfy us and make us happy. We believe that having them will lead to a fulfilled life. But in reality, they are absolutely powerless to deliver as promised. They never do. They promise us joy. They promise us success. They promise us life. They promise us happiness. They promise us security, and they give us none of those things. Because only God can give us those things, ultimately. They can't actually help us. Ultimately, idols not only distract us, but they destroy us. Because they aren't God. We bow down and serve them, and they can't do anything to save us. So which is why the psalmist says in verse 5, For all the gods of the people are worthless idols. But the Lord, the Lord, made the heavens. It's not politically correct to say that all other gods are idols. We live in a very tolerant age. If you believe something's a god for you, then you should be free to believe that. And in a sense, that's true. We want to live in a country where People are free to believe what they want to believe. But for me to say that that's true or that's good goes against what I believe. It's not true when someone worships an idol, other, when someone worships something other than God, which is an idol. That's why he says, the Lord made the heavens. So Paul says in Romans one twenty five that people exchange the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Which is why we tend to worship the things we make. 
we, we tend to worship things like cars or athletic prowess or, or music. Those are, those are the idols we go to. They're the things we make. And we end up worshiping the creature rather than the creator. The word for gods here, for all the gods of the people, is Elohim, which sounds very similar to the word used for idols, Elelim, which literally means useless. And the, the writer of the psalm is, is uh, using a word play so that it could be translated, your mighty idols are mighty useless, <laughs> which is helpful to remember when we're being bombarded by advertising and media that tells us, oh no, these things are really valuable. They look so powerful. And we can, we can fear them. You know what it's like to be someone who's next to, be next to someone who's, someone who's famous or really important. It's like, oh. You know, we need to remember the, the mighty idols of the world are mighty useless. They have no power. God is majestic, strong, and beautiful. Idols are impoverished, weak, and ugly. God made the heavens. God made the heavens. Idols make nothing. Nothing. Men make idols. God makes men. It's different. God is greater than all. He is to be feared above all idols. He deserves our worship. Idols shouldn't impress us. As God's people. That's why we're being called here. Sing to the Lord. Bless His name. Declare His glory. Because He's the only one who deserves glory. So even if people give their time and money and energy and lives for idols, they are not to be feared. They are not to be worshipped. We are a people of God. The one who made the heavens. And only he is worthy of our worship. And we have two reasons to give him glory. One, because he created us. Two, because he saved us. He redeemed us. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. And his people know it and they want to worship him for it. So that's the first call. God's people called to worship Him alone. Worship God alone because He has saved us. Second section, verses 7 through 9. All nations are called to worship God. Not just God's people. All nations. There's something instructive in the progression back in verses 1 and 2. Sing to the Lord, a new song. Sing to the Lord, all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Godward, 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 manward. We go from singing to the Lord, blessing his name, to telling others about it. And when the Greek word, when this passage was translated into Greek, the word they used for tell is the word from which we get the word evangelize, interestingly enough. The best ones to tell others the good news are those who sing about the good news. Those are the best ones. Best ones to tell others about the good news are those who sing about the good news. So verses 7 through 9 are addressed to those who aren't currently a part of God's people. 
They don't know the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Yet here it is, right in the psalm, ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and might. Families of the peoples. Three times they're told, ascribe to the Lord or acknowledge that these things are true about him. He is glorious. He is strong. He is holy. And these verses are similar to a passage in Psalm 29, Psalm 29, verses 1 and 2, where it says, Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory to his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. The difference here is that it's not the beings in the heaven who are ascribing. It's the families of the nations, families of the peoples, the non-Jews, the unbelievers, those who follow worthless idols. Again, we see that what God wants us to know, he wants everyone to know. It's not just for us. He is great and greatly to be praised, which means that God's glory is both the motivation and the goal of missions. Our goal is not simply to turn people away from idols because we'll just find another one. I was having a conversation with a young man recently who's grown up in a Christian home and is a fine, fine musician. And three years ago, he decided to move out and pursue, really, what he now acknowledges was the idol of music. He's a producer, writing songs, and at the same time engaged in an overtly sinful lifestyle. And he was telling me how he he was reconsidering his relationship with the Lord. He was moving back home, kind of in transition. And as we were talking about his life, he said, you know what I've learned? It's like, like I'll give up one thing, and then something else will take its place. I said, oh, how interesting. Yeah, it's like, (laughs) he was just like, wow, what's going on? Like, I'll stop this. And then I'll start doing this. Now I'll stop that, and I'll, then I'll start doing this. And so we had this refreshingly honest and open conversation about how he's just exchanging idols. You know, you go to the idol exchange store. Here, this idol's not doing it for me anymore. Can you give me another idol? Okay, you know, I'll take that one. Thank you very much. It's going to be just as worthless as the one you just turned in. But that's what we do. As Cal- John Calvin said, our heart is an idol factory. We're always making idols, always finding new things to give our lives to, to give our affections to that aren't God, aren't the true God. So it's not enough just to turn away from idols to stop doing things that aren't good for us. We must turn to worshiping God, which is what the psalm is calling the nations to do. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. It's also why Paul, in his letter to the Thessalonians, chapter 1, verse 9, He says, for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols. We we want people to turn to God from idols. God wants people to turn to him from idols, to serve the living in true God. Evangelism isn't simply telling people to to stop doing bad things to be moral, to be upright citizens. That's not evangelism. 
Evangelism is telling people, you've been worshiping the wrong thing your whole life. And God calls you to worship him. To receive the salvation that only comes to us through Jesus Christ. It's because God's glory is our goal. We want people to see how great God is. Not how great we are, but how great God is. And the perspective of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation is that there is one God, not many. And oh, how we need to hear this again and again. As the Internet has brought our world very close and we we know what people around the world are thinking, you don't have to live next to them. We are brought near to them through the Internet. There's this increasing impetus to say it really doesn't matter what you believe because everything's okay. It's all okay. And the problem with that, well, there are many problems with it. The biggest problem is it's not true. But the, the first century church lived in no less a pluralistic society than we do. There were all kinds of gods around during the first century. And what made the early church grow was their absolute, well, it was the power of the Spirit, But it was their absolute certainty that there is no other name given to men under heaven by which we must be saved than the name of Jesus Christ. That's where the power came from. That's what so shocked people. That's what shocked some of us here. As we were not following the Lord and someone told us, Jesus is the only Savior. Not like they even had to persuade us. You heard it, you believed it. Oh, 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 he is, okay. Calling upon the nations to ascribe to the Lord the glory that is due his name. That's our joy. That's our responsibility. That's our privilege. Everyone from our family to our neighbors to our co-workers to those in unreached nations is called to worship him in the splendor of holiness and tremble before him because he alone, God alone in Jesus Christ provides salvation. So we call the nations to worship God. And then finally, Verses 10 through 13, all creation is called to worship God. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. For the first time in the psalm, a note of authority is sounded note of kingship, the Lord reigns. And in case you thought that different gods were vying for first place in the pecking order or were discussing which belief system seems most reasonable or we think it really doesn't matter what god you believe in because they're all pretty much the same, the psalmist makes it clear. The Lord reigns. I don't know if you've all uh, played a game growing up called King of the Hill. In the States, it's, it's, it's a pretty silly game, but it's really great if you're a kid and you just want to just beat people up. You, you have a, a, a mound 
of something, you know, dirt. It's, it's a high place. And, and your job is to be the only one up there. And so there are like six or seven boys, usually, because they're the only ones who seem to get into this. Um, and, you know, a guy's standing on top, and the other guys have to push him off. And, you know, there's this tussle, and it's just back and forth. And then finally, one gets up there, and he's standing as king of the hill for like two seconds. And then the other guys come pushing back. I mean, you know, everybody's just trying to stand on that spot. And sometimes we can think, well, that's the way, you know, God is. It's, it's the gods, or they're all just vying for, for that, that place of ascendancy. And, and the psalmist says, no, no, that's, that's not what's happening. The Lord reigns. He is the king. He can't be overthrown. This is so reassuring. He won't be replaced. He's not going to be voted out. He's never going to die. He is to be feared above all gods. He made the heavens. He is the only Savior. Which is why in Revelation 11, verse 15, there are loud voices in heaven crying out, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Not the kingdoms of the world. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of Christ. There are two kingdoms, kingdom of the world, the kingdom of Christ, and all that will remain is the kingdom of Christ. It's all that's going to remain, the kingdom of Christ. And this is good news. It's good news to tell the world that God reigns. That life is not a series of random events and circumstances. That there actually is a loving, wise, all-powerful God who rules over history and who will one day right every wrong. Read in Isaiah 52, 7, where it says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, Your God reigns. It's good news. The Lord reigns. History is not at the whim of a capricious ruler or malevolent dictators or rich businessmen or even the best efforts of elected officials. No one's going to come up with the ultimate government that will make everything right. History is under the authority of a sovereign God who judges the world in righteousness and faithfulness. You know, it's easy to grumble about leaders. It's easy to talk about what they're doing wrong They spend money foolishly, taxes are too high, infrastructure is out of control, people aren't being taken care of, there's too much crime, too little focus on education, roads, jobs, blah, blah, blah. They're just doing everything wrong. But when the Lord reigns, there are no complaints. There are no complaints when the Lord reigns. Now someone might legitimately ask, well, If the Lord reigns, why is the world in such a mess? I mean, if, you know, what about the earthquakes and and famine and, and rape and terrorism? 
and poverty and sex trafficking. I mean, if the Lord reigns, he's doing a terrible job. How can you say the Lord reigns? Well, there are two reasons we can say the Lord reigns. First is, we live in a fallen world, and his, his reign isn't fully displayed yet to our eyes. To a limited degree, sin reigns, demons reign, we reign. At one point, Jesus calls Satan the prince of this world. He reigns. So we're going to see evidences of other people reigning to a limited degree. But here's the second reason we can say the Lord reigns. The story isn't over. It's not over. The one who reigns above all is quietly, surely, and completely working out his purposes for his glory and the good of every one of his people. And that knowledge causes the psalmist to encourage the heavens and the earth and the sea and the fields and the trees of the forest to worship God. Because he knows it's going to work out. All creation is called to sing for joy to the Lord because he reigns and more importantly, he's coming back and he's coming to judge the earth and he's going to make everything right. All creation will be restored. Now for some, that will be a day of terror. Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians 1 that when the Lord returns, as he has promised, he will inflict vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. As I was going over my notes for this, I just had the impression that there, there may be some here, you're you're hedging your bets against that day. Just assuming, I'll be fine. I'll be good. On that day, no one will have an opportunity to change their mind about accepting the Lord's reign. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And God put this psalm in the Bible to announce that we have the opportunity to submit to him now. To bend the knee now. And more importantly, to receive his salvation now. Because his reign means salvation. And when Jesus returns... God's judgment will mean salvation for his people. Under his reign, injustice will be no more. Terrorism won't exist. There will be no more sadistic rulers. Every heart raised in rebellion against God's rule and salvation will be judged. Everything in disarray will be brought into order. God will come to judge the earth. But he calls on us now to receive his reign and to rejoice that although we deserve judgment for setting ourselves up as the ultimate authorities, he has graciously come to take our defiance upon himself. Jesus 
has come to receive our punishment and offer us full and free forgiveness so that we can enjoy the Lord reigning. And that becomes goodness. Goodness. Hebrews 2.8 says, At present we do not see yet see everything in subjection to him, but one day we will see everything in subjection and it will change creation. Paul writes about it in Romans 8, verse 19. He says, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the whole creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. This psalm is saying that even though we groan now, it's okay to celebrate as well. It's okay to, in fact, it's good and right to celebrate. Psalm 96 celebrated God giving Israel victory over the Philistines and the Jebusites. At that point, the Israelites cried out, the Lord reigns. But if you know anything about the Israelite history, you know the rest of the story wasn't so good. It didn't look like the Lord was reigning. But that proclamation, that declaration, pointed to a greater deliverance when Jesus would triumph over satanic rulers and authorities through his death and resurrection. It pointed forward to to that. But even after that, we can say the Lord reigns. Is the Lord reigning? Story's not over. Story's not over. But the end is coming. And we know how it works out. There will come a day when when God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. God will make all things new. That's the hope we live for. We're not, just, we're not just hoping that things work out for us in this life. That's not the news we have to share with people. You know what? You can, have, you can get a better job. If you turn Jesus, you get a better job. If you turn Jesus, you'll, you'll, you'll be able to have kids. If you turn to Jesus, you'll, you'll have a spouse. You'll get a spouse. Yeah. If you turn to Jesus, you have all your financial needs that you want provided for. No. That's not the hope we live for. I mean, there are great blessings in being in the kingdom, aren't there? Jesus promised that no one who, who leaves father and mother, sister and brother, for his sake and for the gospel, who won't receive a hundredfold in this life along with persecution. But we don't live for this life. We live for the age to come. And we are those that God has redeemed through the blood of his son to be his voice to proclaim among the nations 
the Lord reigns, to tell of his salvation to our neighbors and our friends and our co-workers and other students and people we meet on the street. I was just thinking recently, I've met a number of people who, who are Christians today and have lived many years as a fruitful Christian because someone, met, because a stranger shared the gospel with them. I've just been re-inspired by that. You know, certainly there's, there's a wisdom in, in friendship evangelism, building over time with, with someone and, and, and letting them see your life and sharing the gospel over time and seeing them come to know the Lord. But I, I know a guy, recently met a guy who in, in the 70s was in India and a guy came up to him on the street, shared the gospel with him. He never saw him again. But God converted him there. And he's been in ministry for the last 30 years. And I thought, God, you are so much bigger than I think you are. Well, yeah, he is. He reigns. He reigns. Having that hope and that knowledge makes us not only want to sing to the Lord now, which you do so well, by the way, do so well. But that's not all we want to do. We, we want to see other people singing that song. We want, we want other people living for the glory of the King. We want others to join in what will one day be an endless song of praise to the Lord of all the earth, the Lord who reigns, the Lord who alone is our salvation. What a joy. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for these precious words from Psalm 96 that remind us you, you are a God who is greater than our personal needs, our personal desires, or our personal pains, or our personal hopes. You reign over the worlds. You reign over history. You reign over all creation. And one day we will see, by your grace, we will see the trees clapping their hands. We will see the heavens declaring your greatness. We we will see the field exulting, the sea roaring, and all that fills it. Because you will come in Christ to judge the earth. And he will judge the world in righteousness. And the peoples in his faithfulness. And we pray that between now and then, you would use us to boldly and gladly proclaim your salvation from day to day. And to tell the world, you reign. We pray this in Jesus' name.